Our sermon this afternoon is from Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, See Your Salvation. Well, good afternoon. Wow, you're, you're pretty full of life with that response. I'm starting to feel a little weak myself. You know, uh, I learn a lot of lessons every year uh, when it comes to the Day of Atonement. You know, remember to eat the day before. Brian? He finally did. Brian was so busy at work yesterday, I mean, he was barely eating. I was like, ooh, you're going to be in pain. But other things I learned is how much time we would save if we didn't have to eat. Have you thought about that? I know at least half of us have thought about that. Some of us just sit there and enjoy the fruit of somebody else's labor when we're eating. But then you think about how much effort we take in life, right? We go to work so that we can get money, so that we can buy food, so that we can eat, so that we can go to work, save money. We spend a lot of time sustaining ourselves, don't we? We spend a lot of time and effort staying alive. And so, you know, that always reminds me every year at Atonement, if we just had that new spiritual body now, how much more could we get done? How much extra could we do? A very simple but powerful lesson about what we're trying to learn on this day. There is another way, though, that we can learn from atonement. And it's, it's a way in which we learn from atonement that's very different than the other holy days that we observe. Very different messages in many ways. Perhaps Passover is the closest, but there's some really unique things about atonement. And it's made clear in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 26. And it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also, the tenth day of this month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day. For it is the day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted on that day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does work any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from amongst the people. Wow. That's a big consequence. I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation in all your dwelling. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath from, from sunset to sunset. So that's what we do. And if we work, or maybe back then, if any of them worked on this day, they would be destroyed. Something else to notice it's a holy gathering. You cannot do this by yourself. It's a holy gathering. 
If you are doing it by yourself deliberately, then you're not keeping the day of atonement. You have to gather together. And why do we come together? Why do we do that? What's so important about us gathering together on this day and, and, and observing this day? Well, it's, it's a very unique thing to humans in many ways because we gather for lots of reasons, don't we? Some not that serious, some fun-related. You know, we gather together to watch our favorite teams, our favorite soccer team, the best team in the world, Liverpool, sorry, Mark. But we gather, don't we? We, we get our sports fans together and we, we watch the game. Or we gather at a stadium with thousands of people and we just get this energy from the crowd. And we watch what happened. And we talk about it together later. Did you see when he did that? Did you see the play that they made? And we go over it and we just kind of re-experience it together. Something really powerful about experiencing something together. We do it when we're mourning the loss of a loved one, don't we? We gather together and we remember. We remember that individual. We, we tell one another stories. We share the remembrance. And then we do the same when our leaders are put into office, don't we? Hoping that they won't be as bad as the last guy. Right? But we come together and we... We make a big event of it, especially like a, a presidential appointment. Thousands of people gather and watch this event. They come together. There's something powerful about doing that, about being here together. The people of Israel were told to gather as one crowd of witnesses, if you like. And what else are they going to do? There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. And in fact, I mean, what else are you going to do? You don't have energy to run around and play. But they were told to gather and watch something. They were supposed to learn from what happened. Just like we are supposed to learn from what happened. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, unlike any of the other holy days, failure to stop work resulted in your death. I bet you they had 100% attendance that day. You know, the other holy days, it says, don't do any work. It says it's a commanded assembly. It has some of those same things, but you won't find your destruction if you don't. It's a sin, but you won't find your destruction right then and there if you don't. So it's very different from the other holy days. But these are commanded assemblies. Days for us to not work. I enjoyed very much on the way here putting my phone on do not disturb until evening. It's a new feature on there. And I was like, this is awesome. Work can try and call all they want. I'm not working. We are not working. We are engaged in something so much more important. But why is it important? Why does God insist that we not work on this day? 
After all, we're used to the idea of not working on the Sabbath, but why is this one brought out with so much gravity and so much consequence to the people of Israel if they didn't listen? I think the reason is found in two of the most fundamental, most important elements of atonement theology. They form the very basis of what atonement is about. There's absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves. That's the first principle. There is nothing we can do. And that is why we're told to do nothing. We are told to not engage in our own survival. Because ultimately we can't. All we're doing is delaying the inevitable. right? With each meal, with each glass of water, we're just delaying the inevitable. We are all mortal. Every other holy day, if you think about it, we do things. We do things on Passover, don't we? We take very special care over Passover. We have, we have the bread and we have the wine and we wash one another's feet and we actually are engaged in something. And all of our other holy days that we observe, we count down to Pentecost. We're active in that holy day. Trumpet. We celebrate that day and we look forward, looking forward to Jesus' return. And of course, tabernacle. We spend big on ourselves, don't we? We go somewhere fun. We, we have some fine meals, some fine wine, and we see some things that we other, otherwise wouldn't see. And we, we do lots of things as family, as individuals. But on this day, on atonement, we're told to do nothing. Because there's nothing we can really do for our salvation. There's no coffee to drink. There's no snacks after church. But one day the, the kitchen crew get off. We do nothing. We take no actions other than to praise God, listen to his word, and as we have seen in the scriptures before, watch and see the salvation of our God done for us without any help. And the second principle is tied to the first. It's through all this lack of action that we can remember. We can take time and stop and think deeper of how, how Jesus Christ is the only Savior. There is no other. There is no other way. We cannot save ourselves. And he is the only Savior. So with this in mind, as we observe, as we are gathered together to watch atonement, we're going to watch atonement together through the scriptures. And I think it's important for us to read very familiar scriptures, but to read what happened and then maybe to gain new insight or just refresh the insight and the, and the tremendous symbolism that we have in this, in this very special day. In Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 1, we find the instructions for the Day of Atonement. And it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons Aaron, when they had offered profane fire before the Lord and had died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to just 
come in at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat I was reading the, uh, this the other day and I was just began to wonder did something change when, when Aaron's two sons did what they did was there supposed to be that barrier in the sense that they couldn't go in except at, at just one time a year. It's interesting. The, the two are tied together. Because, you know, you think about it. This God could have chosen to just dwell high above Israel, right? Just floated in the air. But he made them build him a tabernacle, a tent, just like what they were living in. And then he dwelled in it with them. He wanted to be with them. And we read it right there. I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. God is going to appear in this space that they had created. Did he really want to be that separated from his people? I think he wanted to be close to them. I, didn't think, I don't think he wanted this barrier. But what was that barrier made by? They did something that they should not have done. Maybe in ignorance, but up went this middle wall of separation that Paul talked about because of what they did. So often in life, it seems, doesn't it, that we have to create rules and laws to govern bad behavior. If we'd have just done it right in the first place. So, we have this barrier. In verse 3 it says, Thus Aaron shall come to the holy place with the blood of a young bull and a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body and he shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of, the, of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering. One ram as a burnt offering. <coughs> Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So before he can do anything, before he can engage in any of this process uh, of the Day of Atonement, he has to prepare himself. He has to prepare himself and put on these garments very specific garment. He has to put on these, these holy pieces. And as he's thinking about that, what's going through his head? About what he's going to do. You know, and, and the very act of getting ready for something. You know, if you think about if you're getting ready to be in a wedding, maybe you're, you know, a groomsman or something, you're a bridesmaid. It's different, isn't it? It's different than just getting some sweatpants on and a t-shirt. It makes your attention. It gets your attention. And it begins a process in his mind about the seriousness of what he's going to do. Underscoring to him, and in his mind, how very important and solemn this day is. It's special. He then has to make a sacrifice, because he's still not ready. He has to make a sacrifice 
for his house, for the Levitical priesthood, for his whole house. Why? Why does he have to do that? Because he's a sinner. He's no different, really, from anyone else. He's just the same as all the other people. He has to make a sacrifice for himself to be cleansed so that he can then go in on behalf of the people. Then it says, he shall take the two goats that were taken out, remember, from amongst the people, and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Now there's a few things to, to take note of in this passage. Firstly, the two goats are exactly the same. Realize that. Both goats are the same. Both can be used for either part of this ceremony. Either one is acceptable to be a sacrifice, and either one is acceptable to be the live goat, the scapegoat. So that's the first thing we should recognize. And why is this important? Well, what we're reading here is symbolic of something. It is symbolic of something greater. It is symbolic of Christ. It's symbolic of the the actions that he takes for us. The role that he plays for us. And what he did on our behalf by his death and resurrection. There are no other players here. Remember what we started with. There is only one Savior. No one else can save us. There's only one. There are no other players. Remember I said earlier the atonement is about understanding those two important principles. That Jesus Christ is our Savior and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And the second point in what we've just read is that the act of atonement is found both in the live goat and the goat that is It's a two-part process. It's not complete without both parts of this process. In verse 11, it says, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. And then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. And remember, God said that he would be in there, on that mercy seat, right there in front of him. And he shall take some of the blood of the bowl and sprinkle it with his finger, on the mercy seat and on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger. 
seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make an atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for all for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man, no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes to make the atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make an atonement for himself, for his household, and for the assembly of Israel. Can you imagine what that was like? Going into that place where earlier your sons had died. They had died going in there. They had entered that place inappropriately and had died. And now Aaron has to go in there and stand there by himself. Well, not really by himself, is he? Because there's somebody in there there's a very powerful being in there with him. And he is with that person completely, one-on-one, -on -one, acting as this priest for the people, as an intercessor, as a mediator, as we'll read later, for the people. I believe God himself was sitting on the mercy. Sitting right there as Aaron comes walking in. And he is sprinkled, literally, with the, the blood of the bull and the goat, as Aaron is sprinkling that blood on the mercy seat. And how do we know that? How do we know that God is there, that he was sitting there? Well, remember it said that Aaron had to put the incense on these coals, right, to create this thick cloud so that it would cover and surround the mercy seat so that he wouldn't die. Wouldn't die. You know, if you think about it, this may be one of the reasons why Aaron was not supposed to eat that day too. Because this might loosen his bowels a little bit. The enormity of what he's doing thing is, Aaron had seen the mercy seat before, hadn't he? He'd seen it made. And every time the children of Israel moved camp, broke camp and, and moved, the priests would carry this ark out in the open. And everybody could see the ark and look at the mercy seat. And they didn't die. Now if they touched it, they had a problem. But you could look at it so what was it that made this thing so dangerous when it was inside the Holy of Holies? It wasn't the seat. It was the person sitting on the seat. It was the, the God that was there at that point with Aaron. When you think about it, it's a seat. 
isn't it? What are seeds for? Sitting on. I believe God was sitting on this seed. So imagine what it must have been like through this thick cloud of incense. And I bet you he took as much as his little hand could hold. Through this thick cloud, he could see this radiating being. The creator of everything is right there before him. What an amazing thing that must have been. What was the air like? How charged was it? How filled with awe was he? To stand before the creator of the universe. The God who delivered the children of Israel. He had seen all of his wonders. All of his power. He had seen it firsthand. And now he is face to face. With this creator. And so Aaron sprinkled the blood. The bull and the goat. On the mercy seat. And what's also interesting is. As we read. Even the mercy seat, even this holy of places where God dwells, had become infected by the sins of the people. Because he said right there that, that he, he had to sanctify it, and sprinkle it, to make an atonement because of the uncleanness, in verse 16, of the children of Israel. It had gotten literally everywhere. So even the holiest place had to be cleansed from the uncleanness that had permeated the, tab the tabernacle. And then after he's done all of that, he's still not finished. It says in verse 18, And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And then he does something really interesting. And it must have been really interesting for when he did it for the first time. Think about it. You want me to do what with this goat? How does this work? Okay, we'll do it. I don't think it had ever been done before. But he did it. Verse 21, he says, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. I wonder if they really understood what was happening. I wonder if they really got it. That this idea that, that all of their wrongs, that they were being taken away. They were being symbolically placed on this goat, and then they were just going to be removed from the and now they were clean. They were pure. They were perfect. I wonder if they really accepted the sacrifice. Accepted it in their hearts. That this was really done for them. 
And how long did it take for Aaron to confess the sins of these people? I mean, he must have abbreviated it, right? Because this is the children of Israel we're talking about. If there was an opportunity to sin, they would find it. But wait, they're just like us. So I'm sure he abbreviated. I'm sure he just exclaimed the sin and how they'd broken God's law. I'm sure he didn't list every single one. But it's interesting that he had to confess them, didn't he? They had to be confessed. It's a critical part of this atonement process. And so for us here today, have we confessed our sin? Have we taken a moment this day to confess our sin? You know, we're probably in a good habit of doing that for Passover, aren't we? All of the the elements that we take for Passover and everything that we do, we kind of think about it in those terms and we prepare our hearts before that service. And that's good. But this is another day to do that. This is another day that we should do that. To just take some time and confess our sins. Just as Aaron did on the head of the goat. And it's a critical part of atonement process. It's almost as though if we don't do this, then these sins are not removed. That we haven't faced them. We maybe haven't accepted them as wrong things that we have done. And we carry around the burden of guilt that comes with those sins. So he recognized them. He verbalized understood that process of atonement. And then dropping down into verse uh, 29, it says, this shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourself, your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Isn't that interesting, too? That even the stranger, even the stranger, is that a permanent stranger? Is that somebody that was not of Israel and just became part of Israel? Or was that just literally someone passing through? Even the stranger has the responsibility of not eating, of afflicting their souls, and then they also get the blessing of their sin being removed from them. It goes against the idea that God was only the God of Israel, doesn't it? Even the stranger could have their sins cleansed. In verse 31 it says, It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. You shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as the priest in his father's house, his father's place, should make an atonement and put on the linen clothes and the holy garments. And, and it goes on that this should continue. Aaron should teach his sons, and they should teach their sons. And on and on and on, it was supposed to be 
an eternal memorial, uh, an eternal observance. This day of atonement, practiced this way, supposed to continue forever. An everlasting statute, it says. And of course, it was done for a while. And when they entered the land, it was done for a little while. And then they built a temple, and it was done then. But then after a further expanse of time, the people kind of forgot. They started to observe other gods, didn't they? And they started other practices. And it wasn't until Josiah came along, restored things, restored the worship of God. And then after that, well, they forgot again. And they forgot to do this right up, quite possibly, until Babylon came in and took them away. And today, where is it done? Where is this practice done that was supposed to be eternal? There's nowhere on the earth, is there? But this is done. There's no temple. If the Jewish people wanted to start this observation, if they wanted to really keep atonement the way it's written, right here, they cannot do it. Why? a very special item. It's missing. It's gone. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. We don't know where the mercy seat is. There's nowhere to put the blood. Isn't that sad? I mean, that is, that is so sad. It cannot be done according to Scripture. For them, for the Jewish people, their faith and their practice it means only one thing there is no atonement for them there isn't they cannot do this atonement like they were instructed to do but there is another way isn't there there is another way to observe this day of atonement and the writer of Hebrews explains the process to us and why we as Christians should observe this day. If you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. And you know, in many ways, when we're reading Hebrews in these chapters here, it's just like he's got Leviticus open right next to him. It's a commentary on what was really going on in Leviticus. What these symbols really mean. It says, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For, the, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, which was the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which... There were gold, it was a golden pot that had the manna and, and had Aaron's rod that had budded and the, the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now, now speak of 
and detailed. And it's interesting, even back in this day, they, they had lost any records of understanding of the true design and features of the art. It's long since been lost. And yet they had a new temple, right? They had that new temple that was going to stick around until 70 AD. But when they went into the holiest place in that temple, it was empty. There was nothing there to place the blood on. There was no ark for them to place the blood on. How could there really have been an atonement? But he says, the writer of Hebrews says, Now, when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. All year long, they went into that first part. But into the second part, the highest, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. Better not go in there without blood. Right? And better not do it in the wrong order. He needed to take the blood of the bull in first for himself and his family. And then the blood of the goat to the people. Not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Interesting, right, isn't it? Committed in ignorance. Not all their sins were committed in ignorance. But God's atonement covers even the sins that we don't know that we did. The sins that we committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way to the holiest was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was sta still standing. It was symbolic. Aha! Just as we've been saying, all of this was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances opposed until the time of the Reformation. Did you get that? All of this atonement practice, all of the washing, all the blood, all the sacrifice was just symbolic. Even the threat of death and, and not doing things right and not bringing the right things into the, into the holiest place, even with the weight of all of that, it was still ultimately symbolic. And a symbol for this time that we have now. So if that's the case, what do all these things mean? If all of these elements were symbolic, then what do they mean to us, to the world? What is the full reality of these symbols? Well, when we look at the different components, there's, there's many elements, and I've just picked really just, just three or four. And I have these questions. What does the high priest represent? What does the goat of the sin offering represent? What does the live goat or the scapegoat represent? What does the 
the taking of the goat away represent? What do all these things mean? What is the purpose of these things? Well, the answer to our first question, what does this high priest represent, is right here in our next verse. In verse 11, he says, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, which with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There's no mistake who the, what the writer of Hebrews thought the high priest represented. Jesus Christ, our high priest. That is what that high priest, what Aaron and all of his sons were showing to us. And he didn't take the blood of a goat. He didn't take the blood of an animal to sanctify the tabernacle as Aaron did. He took his own blood. He took his own blood and sanctified us. But also this heavenly tabernacle that we read about in Hebrews. The blood that he shed on the stake for you and I, he used that blood. He took it, sanctified not just a temple or a tabernacle, but entered the most holiest of places for us once and for all time. And that should bring us so much joy. It's done. When he said it is finished, he meant it. He did this for us. The most holy place. So the goat, then, of the sin offering and the blood is a symbol of the death of Jesus and the shedding of his blood for us. And then he continues the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of Christ who through eternal through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God think about that and have you accepted that or are we like the, you know, the children of Israel maybe looking at this strange practice? My sins are all on this goat now. Are we accepting of that? That Christ Jesus has taken those sins from us. Washed us. Cleansed us. Cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of transgressions under the first covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Paul, I believe this is Paul. And I, I feel like, you know, he doesn't always write very clearly. He could, he could say it a little bit more simply. But to me, what this is saying is that Jesus is not just the mediator of this new covenant. He's doing that, which is of itself amazing. 
and wonderful for us. But he's doing something more than that. Because he's also redeeming those that transgressed under the first covenant. Did you see that in there? He says, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. He's taking care of all sin. Regardless of which covenant you are under. He is the very source of the redemption that those in the camp of Israel thought they were receiving from goats. Because he was already there. Right? He was already in the holiest place in the tabernacle. Before Aaron came in with any of the blood, he was already there. Sitting. Covering the mercy seat. And we know from scripture that no one has seen God at any time. Right? No one has seen the Father. Abraham, though, he saw someone that he called Lord. And, and Moses, he saw the Lord. We have that account. And when Aaron entered into the holiest, looking through this cloud of incense, who was there? Who was it that was in front of him? If not the God God the Father, then who? Who was it? Well, we all remember in describing the life of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John says this, John chapter 1 and verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh, and we dwelt, and he dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is before, preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. So who was sitting in the holiest place? Who was in there when Aaron walked in with the atonement sacrifices? Who was sitting on the mercy seat? The one who John said brought us grace and truth. Grace was sitting right there on the mercy seat already. The one that we would come to know is Jesus Christ, our Savior. He was right there with Aaron. He was right there with him. Not the blood of bulls and goats. There's only one Savior. There's only one way to have our sins removed. There only ever has been one way. Jesus had already entered into the holiest place as the first true high priest and had already covered the mercy seat himself. So the blood of the goat was just a symbol for what Jesus Christ had already done and what he would also do on, on the stake, on the tree for us. Turning back to Hebrews 9 and verse 16, 
He says, for there were, for where there is a testament, there must also be of necessity the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle all the vassals of the ministry. And, and later, he also sanctifies Aaron and, and the priesthood as well. He puts blood on them. On their, if you remember that strange practice of putting it on their toe and their earlobe and so on. He sanctifies them. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That central element is so important for atonement. And that is why the Jewish practice of atonement cannot move forward. It cannot happen. There is no place to put the blood. There is no shedding of blood. But for us, in Christ Jesus, there certainly is. Because as we just read, he is the high priest. He is the goat of the sin offering. He is the blood that covers. His blood is the blood that covers. And then it says in verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ does not enter the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often. He can't do this often, right? He doesn't do this every year for himself. He didn't need to do it for himself. He's not like an earthly, an earthly priest. As the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages... He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it has appointed for men to, to die once. But after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time. Apart from sin. For salvation. So if Christ is the high priest. And he is also represented by the, the goat of the sin offering. How is it that he has borne the sins of many, like we just read? Because the blood of the sin offering is, is to make an atonement. It's to, to cover and, and, and wash away. But how are the sins removed? Well, he just said it there in verse 26. That he's put away the sin. And also in verse 27, that the sins of, of many. He bore the sins of many. I thought that was the, the role of the live goat. To bear the sins. 
Isn't that what we just saw when Aaron placed all the sins on the head of the live goat? But it says here in Hebrews that Jesus bore the sin of many, of us all. So then, Jesus must also be represented by the scapegoat, the live goat that carries the sins of the people to a land not inhabited. And notice, when he returns, he returns without the sin. They're gone. He has taken them away. Verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. He will finish that work. In Psalm 103 and verse 8, the symbolism is reinforced. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he the Lord has removed our, sin, our transgression from us. So Christ Jesus is the high priest who entered the holiest ahead of us. He is the goat of sacrifice and that by his blood he has sanctified us and cleansed us. And he is the scapegoat who take, took our sins upon him, upon himself, and took them completely away. The title of this message is, Do You See Your Salvation? Do we see our salvation? Do we see our atonement? You know, when the people were gathered together in the wilderness, as, as I mentioned at the, be the beginning, they were there doing nothing. Not eating, not drinking, not working. They were doing one thing. Watching as the high priest did everything for them. As he did it all himself. As Christ Jesus did it all for us. Why do we fast? Why do we gather? Why do we do no work on this day? Why do we stand still and see the salvation of our God? So we can see that there's nothing that we can do. There's no action that we can take. There's no penitence that we can do that will save us. Jesus does it all for us. He mediates a new covenant. He cleanses us in his own blood. And then he carries our sins far away. If we let him. If we will confess those sins. We will unburden ourselves of those sins. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, not with timidity, not fearing that when we step in there, we're going to get killed. We have boldness to enter into this holy place, by a new and living way, 
by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let's come close. There's no barrier anymore. There's no barrier between us and God. We can come close to him at any moment, at any time. We just simply walk through the veil. It's open now. Through the blood of Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Isn't that interesting? Who was washed with, with pure water at the start of the atonement process? Aaron was. The high priest. We have been washed. We have been made priests in Christ Jesus. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And you think about that in the context of where is the tabernacle today? Where's the temple? Where's the ark of the testimony? Where's the mercy seat? We have lost it. We are not all that faithful, are we? We lost it. And the people of Israel failed to continue in this eternal atonement process that was supposed to continue every year. But he is faithful. Christ Jesus is faithful and brought us, as Curtis said, while we didn't know it, brought us the atonement. Before we even knew to confess, he brought us the atonement. Brethren, if you would bear with me, I'd like to do something a little different in closing. I'd like to just close with a prayer. So if you wouldn't mind, could you stand? Let's pray. Eternal Father and Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, we have gathered here on this day of atonement according to your will. Not to do anything, for there is nothing that we can do, but to watch through the Spirit as you perform your work of salvation. Lord, we have afflicted our souls, every one of us, as we are able, and we confess to you, our Savior, that we have sinned. We have broken your laws we have strayed from your ways and we have hurt ourselves and others by doing so. We confess this to you and pray that you would take these sins and carry them away, far away. We see our salvation, Father, and it is your Son. We stand here in your presence, made clean by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we pray that you will accept the covering of his blood on us so that we can boldly enter into that holy place with you, as we have done now in prayer. Help us, great God, to continue to hold fast to the, the hope that you have put in us. Sprinkle our hearts and cleanse us with your water, Father, and bring us into your eternal kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.